Hey guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and and how do you get to make it and you know what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. morning. Good morning, class. How is it going today? Podcast number two, numero dos. It is number two. Number one is in the bag, and now we're on to the second one, and it is going to be I mean, just beautiful. It's going to be a thing of beauty. Getting the podcast going here. I'm just so excited. All right. Well, let's take our song down here. And welcome to the tell welcome to our time together. Just so excited that we have uh you know some time together, basically. And uh today it's all about uh you know, follow-up podcast number two. You know, uh last week we had our discussion all about um well we we talked a lot about honesty and how critical honesty is uh to being uh well just really good at your job it's just such a key part of the work that you're going to do uh, when you're trying to persuade people when you're going to try to uh work with them uh you you know trust really is all you have because at the end of the day it's really about that uh, kind of connection that you're making to people, <laughs> uh, and that's that's really important. So, you know, number 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 show number one numero uno is, is about the most highest thing. I thought you know right out of the bag. You know, honesty is the cl- easiest thing to be clear about. You have to tell the truth and not tell lies. If you tell even a lie, even a small one, you get found out and your credibility is gone. And any chance of that sale goes away. You know, overpromising is so easy to do, but not being able to deliver, it uh, will never get you more business from that customer. It is it is one of those few cases where where this is so key to, to working 
to working. Some people can make up stories to, you know, to stretch the truth and whatnot. But man, if you get found out about not telling the truth, your your credibility with the customer is gone. And it is very, very hard to ever get that back. So, you know, there you go. There you go. That's the that's going to be the thing that's kind of difficult and uh, hard to work with. Uh, so honesty is really important. Now, um, one of the things that's that I also talked a little bit about in that uh, podcast was about two things. And there's homework. I hope you did your homework and you went and watched. Go on Amazon right now uh, and watch Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman. Go watch it. Arthur Miller, you probably maybe had to write, read this book in high school because it's considered one of these great pieces of American literature called Death of a Salesman. It was a play that was written in uh, the, the late 40s, um, and it's just considered one of the greatest pieces of stagecraft ever put together. It's a very simple stage uh, staging in terms of, you know, the action on the stage because it's, it's primarily all rhetoric and dialogue. And there's there's not a lot of action in it, but in that movie, and it subsequently became a movie, and uh, many uh, this has been actually done several times. Uh, it's Academy Award winning uh, performance for John Malkovich back in I think that was made in '85 or something like that. Um, so it was just fantastic. And, uh, John Malkovich, who's just a fantastic actor today was a fantastic actor back then. Um, uh, it had been through many different iterations on stage and Broadway. And it's, it's one of those that's done on, on, uh, shows, uh, or on high school plays. And so a lot of American kids read this book and it's, it's kind of wordy and it's difficult as a book, but as a play, it totally makes sense because, our our main protagonist in this Willie Loman, he, you know, goes back and forth in his sanity as he's coming to the end of his career, and I think it's such a uh, emblematic of the challenge and struggle that so many people in sales have because a lot of times we live in cultures of hope, and um, so we think you know oh this is going to happen this deal is going to close that product is going to solve the needs of that person and you have to kind of convince yourself of that and then you get behind that thought and idea uh and then you make up stories to try to make that happen and that is what what occurs in this um system in the system of the world that willie has set up around him with these his two boys happen Happen Biff, <clears throat> where, you know, his son, who's kind of a ladies' man, Happy, he's, um, or his nickname is Hap, his, um, you know, he's always telling his family, I'm going to get married soon, and he's never going to get married. He's a ladies' man. He's a little bit of a, you know, a uh, kind of a, always out with the ladies, and um, he's got many different girls that, um, that like him, and so uh, he finds... Um, you know, he gets stuck in that kind of phase in his life where he can't ever settle down. But he knows this is an important value for his family. So he keeps telling them, oh, I'm going to get married someday, dad. You know, I'm going to get married soon, mom. And uh, in order to kind of engender, you know, them liking him and they all do this to each other uh, back and forth. They they mislead each other 
um, not in a in a way that's destructive. Well, I shouldn't say destructive. They lead themselves <laughs> down a path that is well intentioned, and um, that's that's as they say. Uh, there's a phrase: the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and that's really what's going on uh, with when when you're uh, kind of in this uh, sales relationship. It's good for the customer. You've convinced yourself that it's good for your prospective customer. Your product is the best. Et cetera, et cetera. And so you have really good intentions. And so it makes it easy for that. And so I, I recommend that highly because that is such a, you just have to have this settled in your mind that you are not going to mislead or, or whatnot. And, you know, this comes from a moral perspective. Uh, too. So, you know, maybe, maybe you don't have a, have a problem with that morality. I, uh, um, and you, you want to, you want to go ahead and mislead. And uh, when you do that, you know, I just, uh, fair warning, fair warning, because it catches up to you. And there's only so many uh, partners and prospects out there for you. And uh, if, you know, in, in the world where success is measured by repeat and loyal customers, you know, once you start burning those bridges, um, it is you get a reputation and then it's hard to retain um, valuable the most valuable asset you have which is a customer so that's why it's so important to have integrity in not only your sale uh, and the persuasion that you're trying to um, get um, from you know if you're filling out that grant application and you're making claims about the the productivity of your organization um, you know, have the numbers to back it, have the have the stories to tell uh, the people that have been positively affected by your your organization or your nonprofit. So integrity is important. Um, it's interesting because a lot of organizations, that's why they love data. Um, this is kind of an interesting part of this to make data driven decisions. So they're always looking to sales um, applications like you know, a Salesforce.com or a uh, Microsoft Dynamics um, application and 365. Please buy that. That's my product. But um, nonetheless, um, any one of those systems, that's what a lot of people are trying to get to is the actual having the data reflected of, you know, success. And so we're not going to count actually on anybody trying to predict or guess, you know, how likely a sale is to happen in the integrity of a pipeline based on promises that a customer uh, or a prospect told to a salesperson, then a salesperson wrote it down and, and put that in the CRM system. And then the sales manager took those numbers and reinterpreted them and, um, you know, added doubled the number, added 20, uh, and then the finance person that has to submit the the sales budget for next year, you know, takes that forecast from the sales manager and he interprets that and she uh, takes those numbers and reduces them by another 15% or whatever. It's all just lies upon lies because nobody trusts each other in that whole thing to, you know, how, how good is the integrity of that number. And so um, a lot of technologists believe we could actually do a better job at predicting that number than people can, because at the end of the day, if you start looking at close, um, the close number, how many of those opportunities actually close, and you look at the um, capacity of the funnel and watch, you know, the numbers and how long things stay at uh, certain levels, you can basically build a machine learning model off of that data and then start doing predictive 
analytics. And um, as you um, look at the universe of those numbers, as only these large organizations, again, think of Microsoft, you know, um, being able to understand that the vast ocean of customers' data and millions and millions of records and seeing how successful those metrics are, are able to tune uh, tune that over time and get more accurate over time. So I think it's only a matter of time before we see AI-driven, uh, you know, systems uh, that, uh, you know, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. A lot of people don't like CRM systems, and this isn't all about CRM. We'll have that in a different time frame. But anyways, I think be- because that's such a core thing, you know, that's kind of the core. That's such a core component of what um, people want to do. They want to see that that integrity in their numbers, you know, that they're, they're reporting up anyways. Uh, so what I, uh, so that, that's kind of a little bit of a recap from, from last week. Um, salespeople were all enthusiastic about our products and keen to make sales and it's tempting to exaggerate or bend the truth a little. So, you know, don't do that. (laughs) Stop doing that. And it's a tough, it's a tough thing, but especially if you're early on in the business, what you just make a mental note of this because you're going to have peers and kids and guys and gals that you, um, you know, kind of your classmates, so to speak, when you get into these sales organizations, you know, peers and things like that, that'll be doing similar work. Uh, you know, you can start picking those folks out. Here's the, here's the people that are basing their whole thing on um uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And a lot of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt is based on kind of marketing lies and deceit. And uh, they they don't last. They don't last. People don't last that, that long because they, they end up uh, not being trusted. So here you go. Um, what I thought in this show that would be just a Jim Dandy thing to do. So that's the recap uh, now I would love to go into um, uh, what I think should be the topic of number two, which is um, I I have a lot of interviews uh, lined up for the show. And uh, so this is the interview section. Uh, but the first person I'm going to interview is myself. So with that said, uh, let's go to the tape and we're going to interview Pierre Hulsebus. All right, thanks. There you go. Here is this is the interview section of our podcast, and uh, right now we're going to ask. I kind of have a universe of questions that I'd like to ask different uh, folks over time, and let's see how similar responses are. Um, you know, and uh, so what? Uh, so the so I'm just going to ask a, a bunch of questions, and uh, let's see let's see what kind of answers we get. And so here we do. Here we go. Here we go. Why did you choose a career in sales? What was it that got you where you decided, hey, I'm going to do this as a job? Well, thanks for asking, Pierre. <laughs> what is the mind of Pierre Hulsebus? Well, let's go. Here we go. Uh, why did I choose a sales career? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, It wasn't an easy choice uh, initially, but I did come to the conclusion um, that I wanted to be involved in business at a certain level. Um, I was always 
interested in business when I was in in high school. Um, I was in junior achievement, actually, um, when I was a a young kid. Uh, So at like 16, I was the vice president of finance for my junior achievement company. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was the president of my junior achievement company. And uh, for for y'all that aren't familiar with JA or junior achievement, it is a basically it's a it's a, a it's a, a, a nonprofit similar to like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or something like that. So it's kind of like that, and it focuses on young people and it helps teach them economics. And so um, what we did back then was they uh, took a group of us, which was maybe twenty kids. And um, we had a, a, a company that sponsored us, and they sent some mentors to help us organize this, and we built a company. Literally, in one year, uh, we started in the fall and raised capital. We sold stock, sold $1 shares of stock. Everybody bought stock. We sold it to our parents, so we raised couple thousand dollars, um, which was a lot of money back then. And we went out and bought inventory and uh, we built a production line and we created um, a product. And our product was um, very nice hangers, actually, like hangers that you would put in your closet, but heavy duty hangers. Uh, and they were um, colored. They were anodized gold or silver and uh, we worked with a, a large uh, Reynolds uh, Aluminum, uh, which is a big company here in Grand Rapids at the time. And uh, we uh, we bought our stock from them, and we had these uh, little jigs built so we could bend the rods and make uh, hangers, and uh, then send them out for um, uh, chrome plating or gold plated um, anodization, anodized aluminum. And then they came back, and we packaged them up really nice and. Uh, we we sold them uh, to uh, friends and relatives. We had different sales at local stores throughout the year. And it let us basically figure out how to run a company from everything from production to inventory control to, um, you know, the P&L statement to paying our uh, paying everybody, you know, production workers got paid uh, by by the piece and how many um, hangers they made and packed. And, you know, everybody got paid. And at the end of the year, uh, we uh, had to liquidate our company and our $1 stock. Uh, uh, we all got paid $1.50. So we, we turned a, a 50% we, uh, growth in one year in our company. And uh, so we, we paid everybody back uh, $1.50 so for every stock. So we did pretty good. We did pretty good. So that was uh, so I always wanted to be in business. I had ink, I got Ink Magazine actually as a kid, and I was just very fascinated with with business um, and kind of entrepreneurship and be, being in a company. Um, I was involved in persuasion because I was in debate club and um, the, those those types of things. We, back then they called it forensics, which was um, giving speeches and uh, like contest um, as a student to do do those types of things. I love that stuff. That was so fun. Um, I didn't really understand at that time what um, because the business club was all girls. And it was primarily how to be a secretary because, you know, this is in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. That's when I was in high school. 
I did take a banking uh, class. Um, so I uh, took a summer class actually um, at uh, the Kent Skills Centers, if you're familiar with that, but basically a, a high school magnet school. So I, I did extra work over the summer uh, and, and went and learned how a bank worked and how to be a teller at a bank and how to process checking and how mortgages worked and all of that kind of stuff. It was a really, actually, I love that class. I got an A in it. And um, I also um, did, believe it or not, here's, here's the irony in junior or in that time of my um, learning and education. I took a computer class, actually, also. I um, went to a trade school there, and it was associated with the high school, again, called the Kent uh, School Skill Centers. And those were like you could take class, you could basically, um, you would spend half your day there at these classes. And, um, and, uh, it was just focused on a trade primarily. So you could do mechanics or a lot of skilled trades were involved in that heating and cooling and construction and stuff like that. Um, but they did have a whole course around computers and data processing. And I was, of course, fascinated with that kind of stuff. Uh, computers were just, you know, we, we didn't have personal computers. Nobody had personal computers. They were way too expensive back then. Um, other than maybe a TRS 80 or something like that, uh, the old Tandy computers or something. Um, but I, I didn't have, we couldn't afford that. I had no, we had no, um, funds to afford that. And so I, I went to school for that to, and we had a big, in that class, big IBM, uh, mini computer, big mainframe kind of a computer that was donated, uh, to the, to the school district, this old, like, 60, 1960s, like, literally punch cards uh, were involved. And reel to reel tapes were involved in this whole process. So it was not uh, anything like any computer you would have. Uh, so it was basically how to become, back then, a computer operator, which was kind of like an IT job that we have today, like a network administrator today. Back then, you would have called that. Um, an operator and you were basically in charge of, you know, doing backups and loading programs and sorting databases. Back then, sorting databases involved taking a stack of cards, punch cards, and, um, you know, um, typing into a mechanical keyboard, um, you know, sort commands to, I need to alphabetically sort all these cards or I need to sort them numerically or something. So database re-indexing at the time was literally cards that went through a pneumatic machine. Um, anyways, anyways, I'm kind of digressing here, but uh, at the time that was um, my beginning of the exploration of wanting to go into business. Now, I hated the, that class. I um, It was actually a two-year program. I really did not get it. I did not at the time. It was seemed so impractical of what was going on. And I was much more interested in um, kind of the business side. And this seemed to me like you're basically going to, you're going to make me be a secretary here. That It didn't seem, it, there wasn't any sort of business analysis involved in this or or any sort of systems analysis work that was what I really was interested in. This was much more about, you know, how to make sure the power worked inside of the data center. Uh, so anyways, and they were just, they were as a skill kind of trade model. And so they were basically teaching you to be what back in the day they called a key punch operator, which would be to something like literally like before 
optical character recognition worked, you had these, you had an operator that would sit and the machine would feed checks to that person. And they, all they needed to do was look at the number, uh, what the, what the person had written in, in terms of the amount, because you, you needed to know that down on the bottom of the check, of course, was the account number in a magnetic ink that the computer could read, but it couldn't read of course, what the amount was. And so somebody had to literally look at that check and on a 10-key pad, just basically type, you know, 106.27, $106.27. You had to type that. And then what it did was it either put that in the micker, that magnetic ink on the bottom, or made um, holes that were equivalent to key punches so that effectively a computer could read all of that. Anyways, that's a, a little bit about what I did then during that time. So I was very interested in much more the zen of the business and not, you know, basically sitting behind a keyboard. Um, that just got really boring very fast. And so I did bad in that class. And uh, um, I just wasn't learning very much. And so I, I quit that. Uh, and uh, I had enough credits to graduate. And so anyways, so... That's uh, that's um, what happened in high school. As I went into college, I really wanted to, um, I was very interested in production of arts and the audio um, world and like running a radio station or a television station. I really liked communications a lot I, because I really was, again, it was the whole thing that inspired me. Of, of journalism and writing and communications uh, like that was a system and um, persuasion became very evident in that. Actually, my favorite class in college uh, as an undergraduate was a graduate level class that I took as a junior because it was all about political science and communication and it, and it followed elections. And, you know, back then I was really inspired to, to, uh, Political science was my was my minor, and broadcasting and cinematic arts was my major. Um, I quickly understood, though, <clears throat> that in order to make money in that uh, to, to make money, i.e., have a family and a normal middle American life, um, being a DJ was not going to pay the bills for that. Uh, that was I loved that one job. <laughs> I loved music. Uh, I loved the art part of that, and all of the you know, making commercials and the creative aspect of it. But it was, you know, a lot of the kids that had graduated that had gone into that part of the business, um, there wasn't a lot of careers around the mid Grand Rapids area for that particular, um, for that particular thing. And I thought, figured out that the only people really making a lot of money or, you know, making a, a, a good long-term, you know, was people in sales, it was people in sales and uh, so that was really my aha moment uh, there. My uh, last years in college was, uh, you know, in order to be successful in the broadcasting and cinema uh, market, you're going to have to travel around a lot and you're going to have to um, basically get into the business development side of this, um, which, you know, I wasn't so opposed to. I was a little afraid of doing the travel and being away from my family for so long. So, um so effectively, I went and worked in a warehouse after I was done with college and drove a high low and 
um, you know, in your 20s, you, you just early, you know, you're, I'm in my early 20s, 21, 22, 23 time. And, uh, you know, I just I still hadn't really figured out um, that I could be successful in sales. Uh, but the, <laughs> my aha moment for me was I was working at a warehouse managing a, um, a, a warehouse that was an offsite automotive company sub suppliers uh, warehouse working out there. And then lo and behold, this guy comes in one day and he's going to install a computer modem. Uh, because we have to hook these computers up into General Motors system, and and there's a whole, you know, um, so this is like 1980, um, this would be 1986, 87, about probably 1987 is when this happened. Uh, the guy shows up, he comes in from Detroit. It's second shift, so it's like um, it's like six o'clock at night. He comes in, and so it's just me and him in the warehouses, big giant warehouses. He's hooking this up, and I'm just watching him hook this modem up, fancy schmancy modem. The only modems I had worked uh, had what we referred to as acoustic couplers was the actual headset of the phone. You literally dialed the number and then you put that thing down. You see them in the movies. You put that acoustic coupler of the headset into the modem and you could hear the thing in the background. It kind of sound like that screechy fax machine kind of sound as the, the two systems synced up over audio. And that's how that's how data transmissions were done back then. And uh, so this guy installed this modem, and I was just, he drove up in a Volvo, which is very bougie. He was like, you know, he's in a suit. It's like, okay, you're, you're just installing a modem. I know what that is. I know how that thing works, you know. And uh, I'm just asking him, you know, like, dude, how, how much do you get paid to do this? You know, how does this work? He drove all the way from Detroit for this modem, and I had heard earlier um, because the modem came in. Um, I'm shipping and receiving, so it came in from receiving. So I saw the purchase order for the modem, and it's like four thousand dollars. Was this, you know, probably at the time twelve hundred baud modem, which is, you know, this is it's even hard for anybody in a modern time to think of how slow that is relative to my one gigabit Ethernet. But it's it's in the thousands of times slower. That's how poor that equipment was compared to what we were doing today. Anyways, I digress. I say that a lot, don't I? I digress. But anyways, I like telling the stories. What can you say? It's just, just not sad. It's, it's more to tell. It's just more stories to tell. Anyways, so the guy shows up, I got the $4,000 modem in my hand and I'm asking him and he comes in his Volvo from Detroit and it's like, dude, how, how much are you getting paid for this? Well, like what, what's, what's really going on here? And he's like, uh, I got paid $1,200 to do this installation. And it's like, I know literally because again, I've taken the computer classes. I know all this stuff and I'm like, you got paid what? You know, it's like I cannot believe. So for a three hour drive over here, you worked on this for like, like 20 minutes to hook this thing up and to run the the program on the computer that set it up i knew how to run all this stuff and i'm like you made what (laughs) so this is where i i'm like okay this is where i need to get into technology sales i need to get into like there's this is where the money is this is this is where the real money is going to show in it and in selling and in the it business so I, I, want, I still have the book. It's called How to Be 
become a computer consultant. I literally bought a book called How to Become a Computer Consultant. I I looked at my career. I said, you know, I didn't take enough English classes. I need to go back to school and get better at writing because email is going to be an important part of this. I need to take a modern computer programming class. I, I had laid out literally about five things that I needed to do in order to enter that business. So while I was driving the Hilo, I, um, I decided that this is what I decided. So I went back actually to junior college. These weren't classes I was going to really work on getting credit on or anything like that. So um, I prepared myself and I uh, one day decided I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this. And a, a retail company was opening up, Highland Appliances was opening a new store in Grand Rapids. Highland Appliance Store is like a Best Buy kind of a place. And lo and behold, they were going to have computers. They were going to sell computers, and they were starting a computer department. And so I was in. I'm like, I know about computers. I, I know what they do. I know how to set them up and install them and how to work them and what a batch file is and how a hard drive works and all of this. And I can do this. I can do this. And so that is was my entree into computers in like 1988. And so uh, that's when I chose that um, career. And I've been on the same career ever since. I've basically been involved in this ever since that time. And uh, so I, I just worked on getting better and understanding more facets of it. And it's just been an endless, you know, kind of um, the journey. That's where it started. So I know that was a long story. <laughs> How did I choose this career? So I, I chose it. I was very intentional about it, um, that I wanted to go into this. And um, I think that's important, actually. I think it's um, it's it's important for everybody to kind of, uh, you, you may not know exactly what you want to do. You may not know how even to get there, but it's a good to have a little bit of a North Star, I think. And then you refine that vision as it goes. As you get in there, you're going to make changes and you're going to readjust and you're going to have success and failures. It's not a linear, your career journey is not linear. It doesn't start at, like, that's the rare case. Some people have that. They know right from childhood, they want to be a doctor. And so, every, you know, they take all the doctor classes and the health classes in high school and the math classes, and then their undergrad is that, and then they get their, you know, they pass their MCATs and they get into medical school. I mean, they're super focused around that. Uh, and I applaud people that have that. I just have a curious mind that goes down lots of different paths. I have to try to open every door, I guess. Anyways, so that kind of gets to the second question, Pierre. Let me ask you your second question of the day, and this is a question I'll ask a lot of folks, is what do you like most about sales? What do you like most about that sales? Well, let me tell you what. Thank you for asking, Pierre. Thank you very much. Um, what do I like most about sales? Well, my favorite things is uh, there's a, a bunch of things that I like about it. One is that it's a learning environment. I've learned this about myself and many of the people that I work with. There's two different types of people in selling. For me, um, it is the motivation of learning. That's why I'm in technology sales. It gives me an excuse to spend hours reading blog articles and watching YouTube videos and trying new gadgets and failing and going, this doesn't work and that works because then I can have an informed you know, um, point of view and I can become an expert in what I'm talking about 
by doing my research. And so a, a lot of the stuff, that's why I love technology sales, is that um, that's what I like about it most, that it's a learning kind of mindset. And, uh, you know, so for a lot of folks, that is not the reason they get into sales. They get into sales because they want to make a lot of money. You know, they want to make a million dollars. And it's a bit of a puzzle that they're trying to solve in terms of how to get from point A to point B. And so for them, it's the pursuit of that goal, of attaining the goal. And it's like a sports person's mindset, like somebody who wants to be a champion in a sport. So they're going to do everything that they can do to personally get themselves prepared and get their team together and learn the right plays and say the right things and organize all the right kind of things that you have to do to win. And so it, for for some people, it's about winning. And that that's also a good a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I, if you're competitive and you don't want to like losing, um, sales may be, be for you. Uh, but I, I really like to, um, I, I, that, that's the thing that gets me up in, in the morning. And that's the secret actually, um, is to any career obviously is that, you know, you have to really enjoy, uh, that, because you have to be passionate about it enough to kind of put up with all the crappy stuff, you know, because it's not all great. There, there is crappy stuff. But um, if you go into a college class of 500 people and start uh, talking about careers and sales, people tend to tune you out a lot. They don't really think, hey, I want to do I want to be in sales. I mean, literally, I do uh, teach a class or help teach a, a class. Uh, and do some guest lecturing around advanced selling at a university at Ferris State University, and one, you know, and so when you look at that, it's, um, you know, there there's kids that are in those classes that are basically checking the box because it's on the curriculum for their degree uh, to be in sales and marketing or business development. Uh, but then there's a couple in every one of those cadres. They maybe graduate fifty kids a year out of that program. And, uh, you know, kind of keeping track of them after they graduate through LinkedIn and stuff like that. You know, a few of them are just real winners in the sense like they they get their second and third jobs and they just are growing in their careers. And you can see their development. And uh, it's because they have a passion for it. They they like the, the challenge. It is a complicated job. I will say this, too, depending on the course, the organization and kind of what you're trying to do. But it is it's it's. It's relatively complex in the sense of uh, uh, what you choose, I guess, from an industry standpoint. I guess I wouldn't say it's complicated. That's probably not the right way to put it. It it is a job, I guess, that's like playing football or um, if you use a sports analogy where there's a lot of different variables that come into winning. And it's everything from diet, you know, if you think of like, what are the ingredients of a champion athlete uh, that's trying to be a world class or be successful? It is not just one thing that they do, that one activity of kicking the ball or passing or whatever. It's a multi-dimensional discipline. And so it's how you speak, how you present yourself. Those are important. But it's also the product knowledge that you bring. It's listening. It's persuasion. Like there's so many different variables. It's picking the right product to sell. 
It's picking the right company to be, understanding all of the dimensions of the um, the perspective the prospects buying process of how they you know so there's just this is why I'm saying it's very interesting because you know sales has that that aspect to it and I think that's when you when you talk to people that love the winning part that's what they're mastering they're they're working through all those little details of you know what is their dialogue that they're going to use and how do I overcome objections and you know the that complicated part um, so anyways. Um, this is really an interesting people like um, despite what happens, you know, there is uh, in terms of what sales people think or um, young people think they want to get into um, sales actually is one of the highest, in, most in demand careers right now and will continue to be for a long time. It's 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 always shows up as one of the one of the best long term kind of careers. And uh, there is a, a belief um, commonly that there's not going to be enough people um, in that field. And there's no other career really that offers an income potential uh, other than sales. I mean, uh, top performers in industry, um, you, you know, uh, it's not uncommon for people that I work with to make over 500K a year, you know, in, in, that, in that career. Again, I, I work for one of the largest software companies in the world so you know we're we have folks in our organization that you know sell we sell multi-million dollar you know engagements it's not uncommon for my team to get involved in engagements that are north of 100 million dollars by the time we're done with installation and software and training so folks may can make a pretty good penny on 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 that and um so that that's the other part, you know, top performers, and that's obviously a lot of the drive that people have is to try to get to that, you know, upper echelon in their field and and to and to be successful. So that's why a lot of pe- people don't initially think about sales, but once they kind of get into the universe of the business world, you start to see how important sales is, and and if you're attracted to that kind of variability, you know, it's, it can be a good career. Uh, well. Okay, next question, Pierre. Uh, what could I have been done better to prepared to be better prepared when entering a career in sales? Well, thank you for asking, Pierre. What is in the mind of Pierre? <laughs> uh, being prepared obviously is really important, but you know, um, some people read books, um, and I'm not going to give you the answer that you think. Um, there's a lot of motivation that goes into selling and to being in the art of persuasion. There's a lot of personal like motivation. A lot of people use, um, they look at people like myself that um, could be measured a measure of success to say, well, I want to just emulate that person. And when you look at social media, especially social media does a horrible job of this, making it seem like somebody has it all together and, that you had a plan in place and and uh, like if you emulate this model of getting up at five o'clock and having the side hustles and, you know, doing all this, all of this work um, and just hustle, 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 then um, and then then if you follow these patterns that people have in their books and buy their books and go to their seminars, then you're going to be successful. And, uh, you know, that 
in some in some instances, there's some truth to this. There's some truth to that particular part, but um, but it is hard to be completely prepared uh, using that model. You know, you you only see, let's say, the positive side. You don't see the 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 downside. I had kids later in life, and so as my kids grew into maturity, what they were seeing was me more at the top of my career. Uh, as they were starting to consider their work and what they were doing, they missed out all those years in the mid-90s when I'm trying to learn all of not only being sales successful, but all the crappy you know, um, certifications and learning Cisco and trying all these other different technologies and um, you know, being successful and not successful in different endeavors that, that you, you started and failed at doing. And so... You know, the preparation is having that growth mindset and that openness. And I think that was the part, you know, I'm generally a positive person. And uh, so I think it takes that. So it's hard to kind of be prepared for that because you can take all the classes that and methodology classes that you want. But as they say about uh, war, you know, uh, plans uh, never survive first contact with the enemy. And uh, they would always say, you know, your plans, you have your plans, but the enemy has their plans too. And so when you get out into the battlefield of selling and kind of in the trenches in kind of the daily fight uh, to do well, um, there's other forces that are competing against you. And it's hard to be have planning for that. You know, you keep focusing on your stuff, not understanding maybe the product or the market that you're in. There are other factors that are that we'll talk about, you know, in other other shows. But there's a lot of other factors that go in that are outside of your control that you have to be aware of. You know, the the timing of products. So you could be a, the greatest salesman in the world, but have a sucky product, or you could have the greatest product and a good salesperson, but the market is not ready for that. It's either too early or there's way too much competition in the market uh, and your marketing efforts in that are not good enough uh, to be successful. So there's a lot of other factors that go in. So you can be as prepared as you want, but there's other factors that go in there. But I guess directly you're asking what could have been done to be better prepared when entering a sales career. I don't know. Had more money in my savings account in the first couple of years. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, did the companies you worked for have a formal sales training program? Did they have a sales training program, Pierre? Why, thank you, Pierre. Yes, they did. Most every company worth their salt is going to have some level of sales training. Um, and the the reason that is, and again, the, you look at those as almost like training wheels, um, so even a college student coming into a big company, you're going to have to learn the methodology of the company that is um, is is being done, you know, of the product you're selling or whatever. So there's always going to be some sort of sales training program. And you have to take all of that and make it your own. But uh, pretty much everyone, um, you know, past, let's say, 1995, every company that I've worked for, uh, has had a, a formal sales training program. Um, it didn't. It doesn't even, you know, always give you that hundred percent confidence in it, but it gives you a framework to start with. And um, you know, you had broader onboarding programs that lasted sometimes weeks. 
uh, ongoing training is provided and should be done. But a big thing, you know, is really you own that yourself. It is your tool. If you're going to become, you know, work to become a persuasive person, you need to own that. It's not just the company's responsibility to train you. It is your responsibility to be ready to be trained, to be in the mindset of being trained and have the discipline and kind of openness to be open to the coaching that's going to happen as a result of that, to be successful in those organizations. And, you know, so part of it's a mindset, uh, too. Back in the day for me, we didn't have computers. We didn't start out using CRM systems and computers. So when all that stuff started hitting the sales tech and um, technology started hitting the sales organizations, uh, you know, I'm buying a computer then. I'm investing in, I'm buying my own computer. The company didn't buy me a computer. My first computers were bought by me. There were thousands of dollars at the time I had to spend um, in order to get those um, resources. I'm spending hundreds of dollars a year on your planner, your basic thing before you had computers and email. You kept track and phone logs in paper and you kept track of all of this in a what we call the day timer or a Franklin planner and the Franklin planners cost, you know, several hundred dollars a year and you're buying those yourselves and investing in that. And so that kind of mindset of, I own this, this is my investment in myself to be, you know, to come off as a more persuasive person or be better at what I'm doing. That's where a lot of that kind of motivational kind of models come from where you own this, you own this because that's a skill you get to move on as your career moves and maybe you move to a different role or a different company. You know, you take that with you. That's a portable skill. And so it really is an investment in in you. And, uh, you know, look to um, my training budget um, this year. Um, I've done over 150 hours of training, almost a month's worth of more than a month's completely worth of time on the clock, at least on the clock, um, for, for Microsoft, mostly all computer, uh, or all sales training and kind of persuasion training and, uh, workplace kind of things. So yeah, it's, you know, you're committing, you're committing. So I would say, you know, if you look at your time budget, um, I just take 10 hours a month, you know, a day, a day, a month, at least, to, to do that, most professions like a CPA or any licensed professional, uh, they have what they call CPE credit. They have ongoing requirements for their licensing. <clears throat> Teachers have the same thing where they have those in-service days to just kind of sharpen the saw and get better and get out of the field and get behind a book and get with some peers. And uh, so, you know, get committed to those kind of things. It all helps. It all does help. Um it's not 100% effective. You know, if I go to a class and invest time, am I always going to get that back uh, in terms of productivity right away? Not not always. Might be redundant to stuff you already know or be conflicting information to things you already understood, but it can be very well worth it. Um, and so you always try to come away with something. So anyways, I got a couple more couple more things. What have you learned from your, what are some of the things you learned from your career in sales? Well, <clears throat> first one, and uh, we talked, we opened this podcast talking about honesty and how awesome honesty is with people and why, you know, they should be honest with what you're, 
what you know you bring honesty to the table and uh, but guess what buyers are liars so my story last week of telling you about how um, you know we we got involved in a sales opportunity but um, the customer was never interested actually in our stuff they were only interested in getting our price so they could use it to beat up their real intended customer or the real intended product that they could say so they could say hey these guys gave us their their they came in here and their stuff is so great and uh, we we think your stuff is you know it's good but their stuff is really good too and they are giving us a price this giant discount to earn our business so instead of renewing with you guys we think we're just going to go with them and um, so sorry and so what a, that company is, all they have then at that point is the ability to reduce their price. Uh, and so that customer played the game perfectly. They had no intention of buying from Microsoft, or excuse me, from the company that I work for. They had no intention maybe of just getting educated maybe about features of products that were in the marketplace, but they were not honest. But I learned this I learned this right at the very beginning that because uh, I uh, said, again, I'm an honest person. I try to be very honest. So I assume good intentions in people that I'm talking to, my colleagues, and especially the people that I'm sitting across the table from. But at a certain point, sometimes buyers don't actually tell you the truth. They deceive you. They don't because they just inherently don't maybe trust you or whatever reason, but they're not respectful of that. And um, so it sounds harsh, um, but when it's that time and it's time to close a deal, you know, that you can't just take all their answers as facts. You, you need to have the appropriate questions and the facts ready that you've gathered from previous conversations to get the results that you're looking for uh, when it comes time to, to closing, because they will not remember, they will miss their deadlines and things are not going to always be in order and you need to be aware of those red flags. And uh, I've, I've learned to have this dialogue with myself uh, over basically um, I have <laughs> two minds. Literally, this is the only way I can do this because I, I hate this part of, of interacting with people to be skeptical. I don't want to be skeptical. I want to believe what they say. And so, but I also have another part of my mind that says, all right, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the cynical salesperson and I'm going to listen to what they say. And I'm going to just look at it from that viewpoint also. And so I, I literally, it's like two people, you know, in my head and sometimes on my paper when I'm starting to kind of score things, um, and come up with strategies, you basically, um, you want people on your team, especially if you have a team, this is awesome to bring your sales manager in and have that sales manager season grizzled. I don't give a darn attitude, um, willing to walk away from a deal, so to speak, because we spent way too much time on this and we're probably not winning anyway. So they're already negative and looking at that customer or that prospective customer in a negative way. So, you know, taking that perspective and kind of blending the two together has been very successful. But yeah, I've learned some stuff and that's one of them that buyers don't always tell you the truth and uh, you can try to be as honest as you can, but that's not their value. They want to sometimes get the best deal that they can get and they're just using you. Or you just fall into the trap of, you know, I, I've heard it called happy ears. You kind of hear what you want to hear and you don't, um, 
you don't uh, you you don't kind of question you don't kind of question so you only hear the the good side of it and again this goes back to that death of a salesman where basically the systems are often set up in a dynamic and a hierarchical structure um, where people demand certain outcomes and then so you say whatever you have to do to get that outcome so that's what ends up happening and the buyers have the same the same thing a common strategy in corporate america is um, let's say i am competing against um, another company another big big company acme we'll just call it acme and or how about this Uh, let's imagine i worked for oracle and i'm a salesperson for 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 oracle and uh, then um, I'm in a competitive deal against SAP. So it's SAP and Oracle. And uh, so you're going to do a proof of concept uh, to show, hey, this, this really works for you. And the SAP team is also going to do the work for you. And so what happens is internally at the customer, uh, there is an SAP kind of team and there's an Oracle team. And everybody that's working on the Oracle team from the customer's view, their career is based on Oracle. That's what they do. They they want the company to do Oracle. And then there's an equally passionate group that is on SAP. And they're saying the same thing. And they're basically um, got their careers wrapped up in SAP. And so if the company doesn't buy SAP, they're out of a job. <laughs> and for the SAP and the Oracle team, they're out of a job. So if you're a salesperson in that and you're only talking to the SAP team and you're the SAP salesperson, you're basically, you have happy ears because everybody's like, oh, this is great. This is you, this, you guys are spot on. This is exactly what we need because the customer, their interest is in your software alone, but they don't have the right. That group doesn't have the right just to sign the check. Somebody else has to sign the check. You know, there's a committee involved. Anyways, buyers sometimes are not completely honest, and we've got to, you know, put some perspective on what they're what they're saying and committing to. The other one uh, is uh, we'll we'll go through this, but this is a so that this is on the universal truth on the the um, the universal truth for me. Buyers are liars, and the other one is you cannot close a stall. And uh, what that really means is, you know, if if the sale, uh, like we often will lose to no decision. A customer is often trying to make a decision when the prospect is there. They need to think about it and uh, they, they're going to get back to us. And they're called a be back if you're in retail. I'll be back. I'll be back. Um, but, you know, um, I know myself when I'm a prospect for looking for something, I'm going to spend a lot of time in doing my research. I'm going out to the stores and when I interact with a salesperson, that is what I'm going to say. I'm going to be back. I'm not usually going to get pressured by them because I'm researching. And so you're kind of kicking the tires and thinking about it and trying to imagine it. And so having that alignment with the customer's buying process is what's really important for me, for us is that I do want to help that person out. If they're in that mode of learning and trying to understand it, that means that's one conversation. If they're like, okay, we're ready to get budget pricing and we need the numbers and we're starting the project next month, and that's a totally different conversation. So lining up with the customer's buying process to get agreement on the process that you're all going to go through, like you're making this investment, they're making an investment of time. 
you, you know, you've got this kind of um, dialogue then going around. We're agreeing to the terms of our engagement as we get to the close. So you've kind of laid that out. And some of the sales methodologies really focus on those types of selling models. Um, and as a salesperson, I'm looking also for ways to defer low probability sales. So if somebody's just in the I'm thinking about it stage, they're not really a legit prospect yet. They're not, they're not legit yet. So I need to figure out ways to help inform them of the product and the positioning of the market and the theories behind the products and all of this. Um, but I'm not going to you know, make a giant investment until they come back and go, all right, we're ready to engage in a deeper conversation until that buying signal happens or a trial close happens. So, you, you can't, so because if they're not ready, they're not ready, and you can't close that. And so you have to be really, really, you know, thinking about that, I guess, might be the right, the right way to, to term it. All right. So uh, what else is on the what else is on the agenda here? I know we're we're almost that time. Wow. All right. Um, so that is those are two immutable truths. Um, what other I got? Um, that's it. You know, what, uh, some of the things you learned from sales in your career. So those are th- those are the different things. Those are two big ones. You're going to hopefully hear a lot more about those. Um, so those are good advice, like buyers are liars and you can't close a stall. Here's the worst advice. <laughs> so I'm going to institute a brand new, a brand new um, thing. We're going to call it the, um, we're going to call it, I'm going to, let's, let's put a name to this here. Um, we are going to call this, all right. the rhombus of failure. So you have the, in my office, I have the, the pyramid of success, the pyramid of greatness, the Ron Swanson pyramid of greatness. I'm going to add my, um, there's nine different categories that he has in there, starting with honor. Um, category number two is blank. Category number three includes weapons, working with wood and warfare avoidance. Uh, category number four, greatness, haircuts, selfishness, and teamwork. Um, a lot of great advice in there. He goes all the way down to category nine. So I'm going to add category 10, which are Pierre's words of wisdom. And um, so one of the first words of wisdom, like this is something that I have learned recently, and this goes into universal truth number one, you always wear pants. Because, you know, standing up during a video conference cannot be avoided. You might, you might have to stand up. So uh, along with that uh, goes um, the worst advice. And so the worst advice does not make it to the pyramid of greatness. Uh, what makes it to what the worst advice goes to what we're going to refer to as the Pierre Hulsebus rhombus of failure. These are bad advice that is not going to get you what you want. And uh, this is advice that you see that is like on cards and on like motivational posters and things like this. And this is just bad advice overall. And uh, you're going to find me to be a little uh, iconoclastic in some of this. Like I don't like a lot of that universal kind of, um, you know, motivation because I just I'm always a bit of a challenger. Uh, and and even these kind of universal truths. And so one one of the 
One of the worst ones is um, the only limit is you. You are the only limit. So, you know, obviously the implication is, you know, if you kind of straighten your head out, then you're unlimited in your abilities and your capabilities. So really the the distance between success and failure in your sales career involves just you and you alone. If you fix yourself by buying my books, by making that call, by calling in right now as operators are standing by, if you pay the $1,400 and attend my seminar, we are going to fix you. So <laughs> once we do that, you will be so much better at selling. At uh, su- success is just going to, you know, the, the prospects will just be saying yes, and your close rate is going to go up. Well, I'm just telling you that's not true. There's a lot of other limits uh, inside of because, you know, sales is a whole dance. It's a whole dance, and you're just the end part of the whole process. Usually sales is, you know, you had to bring, you know, you had marketing had to s- set the message. Someone had to build a product. Um, a service department had to, you know, build loyal customers and um, you're just there to kind of take care of the customer in the next go around. And so uh, those other factors actually limit your success. So it's not just about you. It's also picking a career and picking a company and a team and a sales manager and a product direction that works. And when you do those other parts, that's when you can see success. So that's on the rhombus of failure. Your only limit is you. So anyways, uh, so we're going we're gonna to end with that one on the rhombus of failure. Every week, I'm going to have a rhombus of failure, uh, a new one. So there you go. And uh, we will, uh, we're going to. Uh, talk a couple um, things. I'm going to um, uh, wrap the show up here in a second. So thanks. That's the interview section. And let's let's break. All right, and uh, so we're, we're coming to the end here of our uh, time together today. It's uh, the top of the hour, and uh, so in in interest of being concise and on point and trying to keep my, my promise to you, trying to keep this to an hour, um, we're going to close out today. But uh, what I wanted to do before I did that was uh, to direct your attention uh, to my website. So uh, this is a joint venture between my podcast and our website that I put together um, that uh, hopefully as a little little community that we're pulling together here, um, I wanted to introduce you to the website that uh, kind of pulls this together for you, my consumer, my customer uh, today. So it is... Uh, it's a very simple website to find. It is called Hustle is the Hack. And uh, so Hustle is the Hack. My name is Hustle Bus, so a lot of people called me Hustle. Um, so uh, so Hustle Bus and Hustle is the Hack. So there's a little bit of a artistic alliteration there. Um, but uh, anyways, that's, that's the website uh, that you're going to go and find um, all my stuff. So, uh, of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and 
uh, Facebook and all that stuff. You can find me there too. But, um, and uh, we're trying to start up something on YouTube too, um, because some of this content um, has a little bit is, you know, um, a little bit of, um, let's say video is uh, maybe a better way to experience some of this observational uh, insight that we're giving you. Uh, so uh, with that said, you go to the website, Hustle is the Hack. And, uh, and let me just give you just a one second reason why hustle, why does the hustle about? Uh, so that is, you know, really want to, you know, kind of step back and look at the founding ideas that I had, things that were important to me, what I saw modeled in my parents. Um, you know, they both, uh, my dad was a blue collar man. He's a, he's a blue collar worker. My dad was a teamster and uh, worked a lot of different jobs. He was a union guy, um, and uh, so he, he he was in unions and and did assembly. He was a welder. Um, he worked in factories and uh, and uh, had a lot of different jobs. That at, later on in his career became a supervisor um, for his for warehousing. He got into warehousing uh, and uh, warehouse management and. Uh, but uh, ended his job as a truck driver, ended his career as a truck driver. Anyways, um, so, you know, what you saw is somebody basically that uh, always told me, you know, if you, you always want to have more work to do than you can do. And uh, so that's the reason why we're up at 2.30 in the morning doing a podcast is because I just can't help myself. Uh, hustle is really the secret. And it's what you're going to find, a reoccurring theme in everything that Pierre says, uh, you know, we're going to point you to some resources and and different books and different resources we talked about training and kind of sharpening the saw type of models um so that's true but uh i i really believe the a lot of that is um is good stuff and good information for you but ultimately you have to internalize everything that you learned and make it your own and you want to bring your own unique, you know, kind of style and flair. You are not just a clone of somebody successful. Um, so you can't just look at Gary V's life as an entrepreneur and go, okay, I just got to do what he does. If I can just, you know, encapsulate from, you know, the 15 things that, that are important for him. And we're always trying to oversimplify what actually is a very difficult thing, you know, uh, so the success in in this career and in jobs as a whole does not come from just emulating somebody else. Um, no, nobody playing basketball could emulate or just be Magic Johnson. No, no, no tennis player can be Serena Williams. She had to be her own person. She came up with her own style and her own abilities and it took practice and hard work she just didn't follow the model that Chrissy Everett you know had so if you're coming up behind somebody it's you know you can definitely walk in this in uh, other people's footsteps and and honor their um, their careers and 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 listen and take advice uh, from from folks that that have gone before you but, um, you know, your goal is going to be different than their goal is. And, and it's not always the path everybody has is the same. Anyways, with all that said, that's why hustle is really the secret. It's just getting out there and doing the work and uh, just committing to committing to the process of learning and transforming yourself uh, into um, into that person that you need to be to be successful. And it's it's not about just uh, you know finding the fifteen secrets, uh, you know, some checklist or something like that. 
It's not about getting up at five in the morning. Uh, some people are more creative at night. So, you know, it's not about, it's not about that. It's not about that. It's about you doing you. Uh, to, and that's, that's what we want. That's what you want to do, that you bring a unique style and perspective. And uh, as we we're saying uh, last week, you're a possibility. You, you, um, you know, your unrealized potential is, is there to be realized. And that is the goal. It's not just to, to realize the potential of somebody else and just follow their ways. Anyways, so that's where the concept of hustle being the hack. So that the real hack um, and, you know, because um, I'm an IT hackers, the hack is always when you say I hack this, it's always like, oh, I found a shortcut or a way around a system to, um, you know, kind of accelerate and fix a problem or something like that. We're always looking in my business for workarounds. So something is programmed a certain way. And instead of rewriting the program, what you do is you figure out a workaround, a hack that says, oh, I can get the same behavior out of the system or a different behavior if I do this little workaround. Uh, and so our business is full of hacks. And so we're always looking for, you know, these kind of shortcuts, so to speak, in careers. And there is no shortcut, quite frankly, uh, in anybody's career. So uh, you you need to, need to do the work. And uh, that's all it is. That's all it is. And once you commit yourself to that, you're going to do well. So um, anyway, so that's the hustle is the hack. That is the um, is the website, the landing page for all this awesomeness. Uh, what you want to do is when you go there, you're going to see a couple things. One is, of course, all the links of the podcast uh, as they get published. And now um, this one will be number two. So that'll show up there in a couple of days. And you can also just, uh, you know, of course, see us on all of the great places now, um, Spotify and Google um, Cast and a bunch of different places. And uh, so you can go out there and on your your latest and greatest uh, podcast feed, you're going to find us. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you found it. So uh, anyways, uh, over on the right hand side of that podcast page is the show notes. You can click on that one note um icon it has an n and you can click on that and guess what it opens up one note and those are my show notes that's actually the planning that i'm doing for the next uh, event or the next episodes and this is the you know has links to all the different components of different things that we talk about i talked today about the uh, universal truths and so you'll see all the different universal truths in there we talked about the um, pyramid of greatness, and so uh, the the John Wooden pyramid of success, or the Ron Swanson pyramid of greatness, uh, with all of its categories, and the Pierre's universal truths, which is category number ten. Uh, and then uh, you'll see uh, uh, so so you'll see all that stuff in there. Pretty cool. Some what I call the five, which is you know like what are the top five things on your mind. Uh, right now so that usually goes in there and uh, you'll see more you'll see more and more I'm going to put more and more in there uh, where where we're at um, and whatnot so um, so that's there there are two things though that are dynamic content on this website that you will love Uh, if you're in technology if you're interested in the Microsoft and technology and sales space well, guess what? I have a I have a little newspaper or newsfeed that I curate every day. This is what I read every day to keep up on what is going on in my business, 
And uh, uh, so this and Wall Street Journal does it typically for me in terms of keeping me informed of my industry. And so uh, that is there called Dynamics Daily or Everyday Dynamics. It's a curated page. And you can actually subscribe to that and it would send it to you every day. It's updated uh, every day. And then another thing called the Stack of Stuff. Um, the Stack of Stuff is a link of web pages that I am uh, curating throughout the week. And this is just an ongoing collection of links out to uh, relevant uh, for you uh, as a listener to this podcast. Um, different things that are on the top of my mind. Um, I will be spending um, uh, a little half an hour episode, uh, probably weekly, just going over the stack of stuff and uh, why I'm putting that up there because uh, some of it requires a little bit of interpretation or kind of what's Pierre spin? Why is this this interesting? Uh, and so I'll be referring to the stack of stuff uh, all the time. So this is just links out to articles and things on that order. And you can get that um, just by going to um, the stack of stuff slash or hustles the hack slash wake it's called wake because that's it's a little product that i use called wakelet which keep track of all of my um anyways we'll talk about that later but anyways that's the that's the show we're coming to the conclusion of this show i'm sorry i'm a little late on this but i hope you just have an awesome day Last week I said it, and I'm going to say it again. You're a promise. You're a possibility. You were known before you were born. And you have a purpose and a plan. Now it's just figuring it out and walking it out and working on it. And that's what it really takes here. So I said it last week. I'll say it again. You are a promise. And with that, we're just going to close the day out. You have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day. I wish you well, and I'll talk to you soon.